it becomes quite frankly dizzying and you really have to have the fortitude to try to separate what is is meaningful feedback and something that's actionable and pertinent to you versus constantly trying to address everybody's individual piece of the feedback. All right. Well, everybody, welcome back to Founder Vision. I am Brett Kistler, and I'm here with Brian Gupton. And our guest today is Debbie Fortnum. She is the co-founder and COO of Macondo Vision. How are you doing today, Debbie? I'm great. It's great to be here. Yeah. Where are you located right now? Right now, I'm in Charlotte, North Carolina. Charlotte. Uh, split my time between Charlotte and New York City, actually. Beautiful. So, so tell me a little bit about Macondo Vision. I have a very basic understanding of what it is, and I'm very curious. Yeah. So, Macondo Vision is an artificial intelligence platform focused on improving safety, productivity, and quality in the workforce. We utilize predominantly computer vision now, uh, but we will uh, ultimately utilize many more sensors. Um, but we're looking at how to increase performance in largely industrial operations right now. Okay. Can you paint a sort of a picture of how that looks and what, what sort of optimizations you're making? Yeah. So, you know, we're looking for how humans work uh, and how safe they are, how um, productive they could be if things were different for them and if there are mistakes being made. So, For example, uh, in one client that we have, when they're loading pallets onto a truck with a forklift, uh, they actually make mistakes and uh, they put the wrong pallet on the wrong truck. And even though they have lots of systems that are operating currently in that facility, they're transactional systems. And transactional systems, while we've used those as a proxy for seeing for a long time, they can lie to us. And with computer vision, you actually can see what's happening. And we'll note that that pallet was actually loaded on the wrong truck and alert the forklift driver that something has gone wrong that he needs to correct. And what, what inspired you to develop this particular idea? Yeah, well, that's that's a bit of a longer story, I guess. Um, you know, I wouldn't uh, categorize myself as a typical startup founder. I worked for over 25 years in technology and operations in CPG and retail spaces before deciding uh, with a friend of mine, a colleague, uh, to start our own company. Um, In my experience, that's a bit out of the norm. You know, we're we're a little longer in our careers for this type of uh, situation, but um, it's good. And I guess I'd say, you know, I also I came by that a little naturally because my mother um, also uh, out of the norm uh, was an early female in technology. She uh, is the one who really pressed me to, to take that on in my life. And um, she also later in her life started her own business. So had a pretty good role model there um, for 10 years um, as a retail executive. I focused on transforming operations to support the explosive growth in in online sales. And at first we were really ill-equipped 
to handle the significant paradigm shift of shipping boxes and or pallets to stores, uh, moving towards putting items in boxes to ship directly to consumers. Uh, the increased labor content and the, the pressure to ship quickly, coupled with extreme demand variability, had us chasing ever more capacity and productivity. Uh, this is actually when I met my co-founder, Frank. Uh, he came in as a consultant um, to help us build out the necessary supply chain infrastructure to meet this demand. And honestly, over a couple years, we would spend many millions of dollars to automate existing and, and build new fulfillment facilities. This was a time of working harder, not smarter for honestly the whole retail industry. <laughs> um, we were sinking, all sinking fantastic amounts of capital into operations that honestly generally failed to, to meet their goals. And at this point, we started thinking about uh, how we could serve ourselves and our customers um, much better by leveraging all of our assets uh, and our resources to, to fulfill customer demand. So that's sort of the beginning of the omni-channel world. Uh, building out those capabilities um, to utilize store inventory, put more of that inventory online, make more of it available for sale, and really utilizing uh, those assets, the stores and those associates to help fill that demand. Um, you get, you know, buy online, pick up in store or ship from store, um, lots going on there that uh, adds a whole lot more complexity. So, in order for uh, retailers to really do this effectively and efficiently, they had to go on, undergo significant transformation. Hmm. So, so something that's curious there is how how would you how do you frame the the initial problems that you would solve with this product? Because you know AI is also notorious for making mistakes, and if you have humans making mistakes, and then they're overseen by AI making different kinds of mistakes or optimizing for different things than the humans. How do you bring that into alignment in a way that is, in the you know, in the first instance, actually helpful, and then the second instance, you know, seen as something that is not dystopianly like surveilling and controlling, but something that's supportive and helpful? Right. Uh, so I think what you're asking me is, um, are we Big Brother? Uh, and, and and no, we're not because. Um, you know, yes, artificial intelligence makes mistakes. And, and certainly in the realm of computer vision, you know, through machine learning, humans actually teach the, you know, the machines what they're what they're looking for. Um, it's actually a bit more simplistic uh, in terms of what we're looking for in, in our environments. And not to say it's, it's without fault, but, uh, you know, we're not uh, landing people on the moon. Um, but when you realize that what people are utilizing today, again, back to the transactional system conversation, somebody can, you know, scan a door uh, and then scan a pallet and put that pallet in another door. And so transactionally, the system, you know, would tell everybody um, that one thing happened when, in fact, another thing actually happened. So the computer can easily, cameras can easily see this and the computer can infer what's happening and in real time alert that driver 
to help them correct the mistake. I think where, you know, people get concerned about Big Brother is that we're reporting you. Um, you hear a lot about this conversation, you know, in Amazon warehouses uh, there, you know, you're constantly being monitored by all types of sensors um, and your productivity is being forced. But our philosophy is more of, you know, prevention and really intervening with the actual employee first um, to help them correct the situation or check in on them before, you um, you know, there's any sort of supervisory action taken. Right. And it really sucks as an employee to have put the wrong thing on the wrong pallet and then discover it when it's in the wrong city and then someone's angry and there's a, you know, a customer complaint. Um, I'm, I'm still curious now getting back into sort of the technical aspect of this. So you, you mentioned that it can do this in real time. So you have a transactional system. I imagine that transactional system is connected to this computer vision system. So it recognizes which product was scanned because maybe there's some location in the video where the scan occurred, or maybe it's recognizing the laser reflecting off of a, a QR code or something. And then it's re recognizing where the door was scanned that it's supposed to go into. And so how, how much information does the AI register about what was supposed to have happened versus what did happen? That's a, that's something I'm really curious about. So we really, you know, it's optional for us as to whether or not we are um, integrated at all with the transactional systems. We can, through APIs, uh, get certain information or even update information back to those transactional systems, but we can be very standalone. So we're not looking for what people scan. We're not trying to read barcodes. We know where things are spatially and where they were supposed to go based on that information. Hmm. So people are staging things on a dock in a warehouse and based upon how they've mapped that out, we infer where it was supposed to, to ultimately be loaded. Uh, so we're not um, really trying to pull out all of that uh, transactional information. And that's why, you know, again, a picture's worth a thousand words. Um, really seeing it is is knowing. Mm -hmm. uh, one last question on kind of the, the technology side that I'm, I'm just curious, like how how is this reported to the the end user client, like the, the insights that you're providing? So two ways. Uh, again, the, the real time alerts, uh, we can either put uh, light sensors on the doors that light up. Um, it's not our preferred method because, again, it's sort of uh, a beacon that shows everybody that something's wrong, um, or it can be a light-up sensor on the forklift that alerts the driver um, instantaneously that, that an issue has occurred. And then we put together a dashboard. You know, it's, it's a web-based uh, portal that they can go in, you know, supervisory, lots of folks um, at the client and understand larger metrics uh, performance wise um, in terms of what's happening, pallet journeys, how things were loaded, how many things were loaded, uh, which helps them, you know, when they go back to sort of prove out at certain times that, that things really did get loaded on a trailer as they're having right. potentially some, some conflict uh, down the line, so to speak. We use um, our models, our computer vision models are all on the edge. So we use uh, edge inference and send that data back to the cloud for, you know, putting out to um, dashboards and or determining that an alert needs to be made. 
Okay. Now, you mentioned that both um, you and your co-founder, Frank, had you know a lot of experience in the industry um, before deciding to, to start the, the company for other people out there uh, in the audience that are, you know, coming from a, a similar situation where, you know, they've spent 10, 20 years in, a, in an industry. Uh, I'm curious, like, what were some of the hurdles that um, you and your co-founder had to overcome when you were first starting out? Um, and is there anything that you think you would have done differently? Great question. I, you know, I think we both thought that, um, our industry knowledge and our own experiences in dealing with these problems would sort of help the situation speak for itself, uh, which has not been the case. Uh, <laughs> you know, we still get a lot of uh, questioning from people, you know, investors, I would say, uh, not just people, but predominantly uh, potential investors about, is this really a problem? Are you sure? Um, and it's because people, they don't understand the space. I think, you know, for us, that's been um, an unexpected situation, um, how much time we sort of have to spend um, defending our problem statement. Um, and that goes hand in hand with just the, the journey of capital raising. Uh, you get a lot of advice. Uh, you get a lot of um People telling you um, early on that it's a journey, it's going to be a process, it's arduous, you know, all these things, but you, you don't really understand and, until you go through it. Um, and I think that, you know, what we would do differently is just not take everything to heart um, mm -hmm. and not react so much to all of the feedback that we were getting. You literally, we would do these... Uh, investor speed dating sessions where, you know, you'd have 20 minutes with each uh, group and you might do 20 of those in a day and they're just back to back and we would get, you're too broad. And right behind that, we would get, you're too narrow. Um, <laughs> you're a big brother. You're not, you know, your tech isn't deep enough. Um, why is your tech outsourced? Why would you not outsource your tech? I mean, it <laughs> it becomes, quite frankly, dizzying. And you really have to have the fortitude to try to separate what is, is meaningful feedback and something that's actionable and pertinent to you versus constantly trying to address everybody's individual piece of the feedback. Right. Mm -hmm. Just to dig into that just a little bit more, because I think that is a, a very common um, issue that all entrepreneurs face. Um, and what I mean by that is the you've spent uh, a lot of time thinking about your the problem that you're trying to solve and how you're trying to solve it. And then you get in front of an investor or some sort of a gatekeeper um, who has spent no time thinking about these things. And, and you have very limited amount of time uh, to distill, you know, all of those things down into something that's digestible for that person. So when you go in and into those conversations, do you sort of have like a like subconscious ability to feel the person out and try to figure out, you know, what's going to resonate? Or is it better to, to just have, you know, your kind of pitch that, um, you know, that that is that's what you believe in. And then it and then you just the the faith that it's going to resonate with the right type of investor. 
I'd say a few things on that. I mean, one, I, I think it's super important that you do your homework up front uh, and really understand, you know, who you're pitching to and if you even want to pitch to them. I think a lot of times founders get caught up in, you know, they're going to they're going to pitch to everybody because you never know who might be willing to invest in you. And that ends up being a giant waste of time. I mean, you really have to do the research up front to understand, are these people that, you know, have invested in your space? Are they people that are likely to, you know, understand better than some others what you're doing? Is there a particular thing about what you're doing that resonates, whether you're um, a diverse founder, any of those kinds of things? So it's, it's really picking your spots which can be hard to do. And, and it's just more homework that you have to do, but it, it's it's absolutely crucial. And I think with Frank and I, because oftentimes we're pitching together and it's super helpful to have the both of us having known each other so long, we can help each other out while one is sort of reading the room or reading the situation. So much of this is over Zoom now. That way that person can kind of jump in and clarify because when you're pitching, you kind of are on a roll <laughs> and right. sometimes you, you know, you don't fully understand uh, the questions or you're not absorbing the blank stares uh, for what they are. So hmm. what's the rejection that you received that hurt the most or the re- rejection or maybe just piece of feedback from one of these, from one of these investors that was the most difficult to hear or receive, but turned out to be the most valuable upon later reflection? I would say that they might be two different things. I mean, the one that hurt the most is actually from, you know, someone who is in, you know, sort of the supply chain operations investing space uh, that we've actually talked to several times and um, keeps kind of telling us that they don't think it's a real problem statement. So, that's that's challenging and, and frustrating, and you just have to kind of put that behind you. I think the thing that has been the most helpful is when people say, and we've heard a couple times, it doesn't feel like you're being authentic. Um, mm. it, like it feels forced or something. And that really is because, again, we had let our preponderance of feedback kind of twist us around. And, you know, I would tell you after two years, we're back to the the basic pitch deck that, um, or at least the essence of that pitch deck that we had two years ago. And we've been through a thousand versions. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. when you get into a situation like that, with that kind of feedback, um, you know, given that you do have all, so much industry experience, were, were you able to go and talk to other people in the industry and, and you know, show that, you know, hey, you're, you're thinking that this is not really a big problem. But, you know, here's some quotes from, you know, 20 different people in this industry who manage this particular area that talk specifically about the problem and the willingness to, you know, spend money to address it. Yeah. And I think what you find is... Um... Generally, when people have kind of made up their mind about you for whatever reason, trying to convince them is probably not going to work. So, yes, you know, we have done what you what you've said. And um, even again, speaking to our our very much our own personal experiences, 
um, and those of our peers, you know, across a, a wide network. Uh, but, you know, sometimes it's just not meant to be. I mean, undoubtedly, you're going to kiss a lot of frogs. <laughs> yeah, and imagine, uh, as you were saying about the investors noticing your authenticity or lack thereof, I imagine that if if you are shaping your pitch and your your entire presentation of yourself based on the feedback that you're receiving from everybody coming from all these different angles, then when you have a conversation with somebody, they're going to have the sense that they're actually talking to all the investors you've ever talked to rather than you about your product. Exactly. Yeah. It's a bit of a a Sybil moment, probably. I don't know how many people will get that reference, but it was, you know, someone who has, you know, multiple personalities, but Mm. um, we, we were definitely, um, overthinking some of those uh, aspects to be sure. And, you know, and I do want to say feedback and the ability to take feedback is very important and, and not be defensive. And I think it's it's interesting because we, having been, you know, in an accelerator and, and we know a lot of young founders and they tend to get very defensive about their ideas. And it's great that you love your idea, but you have to be open-minded and you have to be flexible and you have to get to a place where you say, yep, thank you. Thank you for listening. Appreciate your feedback and move on. Uh, again, the, the arguing with people and, and really trying to convince them of something if they've made up their mind and generally they do pretty quickly, just isn't going to serve you. Did you guys go through any accelerators? We did. We were a part of XRC Labs. We're still a part of XRC Labs. I mean, okay. we're always a part of it um, in New York. Very focused on, uh, you know, retail, the retail right. space. Now, have, have uh, some of the challenges with uh, that you've kind of mentioned here now, have they been at least in part uh, due to the fact that you guys are trying to build cutting edge technology, but for, you know, what some people would consider like less sexy industries? Sure. And less sexy. And again, just back to not understanding. Um, But I think people in, in, you know, when we start to talk about, you know, market size and the size of certain problems, people have no concept that it could be that big. I mean, a couple things. I think most people believe that all warehouses in the world are very automated. They believe well, Everything's isn't, like Amazon. Every, isn't every warehouse an Amazon mm. warehouse? It's all run and, by robots, right? <laughs> and, and, you know, the thing is, I mean, even Amazon warehouses have a multitude of people. I mean, last year they added half a million people to their warehouses um, and, and are on track to do so again this year. Um, and even their VP of, of robotics last year said, our technology is about uh, getting faster and um, getting more out of the same space. It's not about necessarily replacing people. And I think that's what people tend to lose sight of outside of just the the big brother. We get the, well, you're taking everybody's job and or robots are going to take everybody's job. And, and, and no, there are always going to be people working in warehouses. Now, they may be working alongside robots, which, again, is... Uh, ever more the need for making sure that it's a safe environment and in monitoring those interactions. Um, And so people, 
yeah, people are like the warehouse. I mean, you're just moving boxes. But the, the one thing that I would say as uh, supply chain practitioners, we would say somewhat of a silver lining about what's been happening recently, and they're very hard to come by. <laughs> but all day, every day, all that's talked about is supply chain. And so now I think uh, pretty much everybody in the world is is very informed on how important supply chain is, how complicated it can be, and uh, how bad it can be when things go wrong, um, and how um, what the what the implications are. So I think there's a newfound. Um, appreciation and um, at least desire to understand what can make that better. Mm. As a final question to wrap this up, I'm curious how, what you've learned about authenticity from all of those, you know, investor, investor conversations and feedback, how all of that impacted the way you show up in the rest of your life? You know, another great question. Um, I, I think that, um, it's been a personal journey of mine anyway, as a engineer uh, by trade and in my mind, you know, I've, I've always kind of been more focused on doing things um, and, and not thinking about the human side of things so much, um, which is quite frankly, part of why we even started this, our own, you know, uh, trials and tribulations in that space. And I've come to understand really how important it is to empathize and, and cultivate um, the relationships and the trust with people because I'm not one that talks about myself very much. So uh, I've learned to, to, to do more of that, hence I'm here today. And being authentic at the end of the day, it's Somebody's going to get it. Somebody's going to appreciate it. And people are certainly going to recognize it. It'll, it'll either work out for you in terms of investment or relationship or a customer or just a, a better life overall. Mm. Beautifully said, Debbie. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. All right. Thank you all for listening to Founder Vision. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe and share it with your friends. I'm also really grateful for your five-star ratings and reviews, as well as any feedback about what we're doing well and how we could make the podcast even better. To send feedback or to connect us with a potential guest, reach out to foundervision at clearview.team. 